Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. We're going to read a bit, because we're going to read through chapter 5, verse 32. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahuahel, and Mahuahel fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, And he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. 
Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, this morning we saw how Cain descended um, towards destruction on this downward spiral of sin. Yet Cain's descent into greater and greater depravity is a picture of what was happening at the very same time in the whole human race. After the fall in the garden, generation after generation arises, each progressing in human accomplishments, but each regressing in regards to purity and holiness and the fear of God. As human history began its march through century after century, the wickedness of man continued to grow greater and greater. And Cain's line is representative of this. In verse 16 of chapter 4, we are told that Cain settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word Nod literally means wandering. Cain settled in the land of wandering. Nod is never mentioned again in Scripture. We have no idea where it was or if it was even actually a, a, a real place with a city name or a region name or if it was simply a word to describe he went out to the uncultivated lands. He went out into the wilderness. He went out to a place of wandering. The point seems to be that after God judged Cain for his sin of killing Abel, Cain left his family and proceeded to move further away than the rest of his family from outside the gate of the Garden of Eden. Cain embarked into the uncultivated wilderness, the land of wandering. As we've been studying through Genesis, I have recently become persuaded that in the beginning, the Garden of Eden was not just the place where Adam and Eve dwelt before the fall, but it was also God's dwelling place on earth. It was this place where his special presence was set on earth. Eden was the first temple, the holy of holies, where man could be in the special presence of God. We talked many weeks ago about the command that God gave to Adam to keep the garden and to work it. And if you'll remember, I pointed out that those same two words are given to the priests in the temple, that they were to work the temple, that they were to keep the temple. It is my understanding that Adam, just like the second Adam, Jesus, that Adam was created to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. That he was created to, to know and speak the truth of God as a prophet. That he was created to rule over the earth as God commanded as a king. And that he was created to be a priest, serving the Lord God in his holy place before his holy presence. 
But this privilege was not just for Adam alone. As Adam and Eve multiplied, if I understand this right, I think their descendants were also meant to be prophet, priests, and kings. And that they too were to serve the Lord in the Garden of Eden. It seems unlikely to me that Adam and Eve originally were meant to have children and then Adam and Eve were to stay in the garden and the children were to go outside of the garden. Rather, it seems much more likely to me that as humanity grew, the borders of the Garden of Eden were to grow. That God's dwelling place on earth was to grow as as humankind obeyed God's command to subdue the earth. And so with each new generation of new human beings, there would need to be more room to serve God in His presence. And so they would take that uncultivated land around the garden and they would work it and they would subdue it and they would bring that land into the garden until God's dwelling place on earth, until heaven on earth filled the earth. Does that ring any bells with you from the rest of the Bible that talks about how God's goal today is still that one day heaven will fill the earth, that His glory will be praised throughout the earth, that His people will be filling the earth? Now, what we see here with Cain is the results of sin. We know that Adam and Eve's sin had them uh, exiled from the garden. But it at least seems likely that when they left the garden and came out into into this, this, this good creation that was now stained by the fall and all of this uncultivated land, that Adam and Eve probably stayed close to the outside of the garden and began to cultivate some land there and to live off that land there. But we read here about Cain that he went away from the presence of the Lord. And that seems to mean that he chose to go away from outside the Garden of Eden. He he went off into the uncultivated wilderness to find a place for himself. We're told he even went and established his own city, naming it after his own son, perhaps seeking to make a kingdom for himself against the kingdom of God. The nature of sin is this very thing. It separates us from the God we were created to dwell with. Man was made to dwell with God forever, but now Cain, who was created to dwell with God forever, is actively seeking to escape God's presence. Cain is moving away from the outskirts of paradise because he despises the one who dwells there and he wants to get away. Sin causes us to despise the very one we were created to love. This morning I quoted the words of Jesus that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works for evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Sin in our hearts causes us to despise God and to despise His Son. Many of us know people that we love dearly who want to stay as far away from church as they can be. They want to stay as far away from even talking about God as they can be. And you have your family reunions, they don't want you getting involved with them in a religious discussion because they are living in sin and they love their sin. And just the very mention of the name of God or of Jesus makes them feel awkward. It makes them feel uncomfortable and they would rather live their lives without hearing the name of God. Do you know folks like that? I know folks like that. Well, that's where Cain is. Cain has sinned against God. He's living in sin. He knows it. And kind of like Jonah, he is fleeing the presence of the Lord. Well, we come to the lineage of Cain here in verses 17 through 24. 
And what we need to recognize ahead of time is that Adam and Eve did have other sons and daughters. We've met Cain and Abel. We're going to meet Seth. But besides those three, Adam and Eve did have other sons and daughters. Chapter 5, verse 4 says so. Tells us that they had other sons and daughters. And this is important because it tells us where Cain found his wife. Um, Later, there would be no need for siblings to marry. And certainly later, God would outright um, uh, condemn this practice. But here in the beginning, it seems very likely that Cain took his wife from the daughters, these other daughters of Adam and Eve. Recognizing that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters is also important because it reminds us that the line of Cain in chapter 4 is representative of a whole group of other lines that were also uh, affected by the fall when descending into wickedness. There were other sons of Adam besides Cain who who bore children and had grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And just as we see sin rear its ugly head and continue to escalate in the lineage of Cain, we should assume that that happened as well in these other lines. Because when we get to chapter 6, we find that all humanity has become so corrupt that God determines to judge the whole human race and to wipe them out. If you look closely at the genealogy of Cain in chapter 4, you will notice that only one name is given in each generation. In other words, we're not given a full family tree here with the names of the men's wives and all their sons and all their daughters who were born to them. Rather, we are simply given the name of father and then one son. And then that one son becomes a father and it mentions one son. And then he becomes a father and it mentions one son. We're not given the big picture of the family, all of the siblings and spouses, they are not mentioned. And the reason is that God is taking us somewhere. He's getting us from Cain to a a certain descendant that he wants to draw our attention to. And so he connects the father, Cain, to this descendant, Lamech, through the sons that get us there. It's Lamech and his three sons that our attention is being drawn to in Genesis 4. And why? Why does God want us to know about Lamech? Well, because Lamech is such a clear example of how humanity had grown in corruption since the fall and how the beginnings of of wickedness that we saw in the life of Cain are reaching even new heights of depravity as generation after generation continues. Lamech is the first recorded polygamist in the Bible. He is the first person that we meet in Scripture who takes for himself multiple wives. Now, unfortunately, many will follow his example throughout the rest of Genesis. Uh, In fact, this particular sinful innovation of taking more than one wife ends up bringing a lot of pain into the lives of many people in the Old Testament. Um, The Old Testament nowhere expressly condemns polygamy, but the pain of polygamy is written all over the Old Testament. And Genesis um, chapter 2 teaches very clearly one man, one woman, and that's how it ought to be. But Lamech is known for this innovation of polygamy. But even more so than that, there is another evil that we are to notice about Lamech. And it is this song recorded in verses 23 and 24 that he sings to his wives. Um, You see, God gave Cain a mark that warned others that if they killed Cain, they would be punished sevenfold. 
This mark was a mark of humiliation for Cain. That mark marked Cain out as a murderer. Lamech, however, thinks of Cain's tattoo, his mark, as a badge of honor. You know how Romans 1 talks about when in describing the heights of depravity in the human race, it says not only do they do wicked things, but they approve of others who do them. Lamech looks at Cain. By the way, Cain is mentioned in Lamech's song in the present tense. As strange as it may sound to us, as we saw with those ages a while ago, these people lived a lot longer than us. It is very, very possible that Cain was still alive when his great-great-great-great-great-grandson is alive writing this. He speaks of Cain in the present tense. And so Lamech has seen probably the mark of Cain. He has seen this mark upon him, and he sees it as a thing to be envied. He esteems Cain highly because of this mark. It's it's an attitude that will be on the earth even after the flood. Later, we will see this attitude of if he's violent, if he's ruthless, then he's a man to be esteemed. He's a man to be honored. And so Lamech sees Cain and he wants to be like that. And so Lamech murders a young man and then glories in what he has done. There's no remorse There's no uh, regret. It is glorying in what he has done. And then he wants to surpass Cain. He says if, if God was merciful to Cain and gave Cain the promise that anyone that killed him would be punished sevenfold, well, Lamech believes he should have a mark that would cause him, if anybody were to kill him, to be punished seventy-sevenfold. And so what we see here is a lack of regard for human life, a contempt for God, a, a heart full of arrogance. What we see here is the downward spiral of sin in the human race. Now, three sons of Lamech are mentioned, and they are important because they represent progress in the human race. Uh, we meet Jabal, the father of the, uh, the Bedouins, uh, those who dwell in tents and keep livestock. Um, these men are still alive today. That is, there are still Bedouins in the Middle East. I'm not positive that's how you say that word, Bedouins, but that's who he's referring to. These are men in the Middle East who live out in the desert in tents and they wander around following their flocks and that's how they live their lives. I mean, you think that Abraham um, was an example of one of these and uh, they still exist today. Then there is Jubal, who appears to have been the first to, to craft musical instruments. And then we meet a man named Tubal Cain, who was the first to work with, with metals. And the point of all this is to help us see the... <coughs> excuse me is to help us see the progress of the human race in intelligence, in creativity, in discovery, in science. And yet even as humanity is progressing in these things, they are also progressing in wickedness and progressing in sin. All of these achievements mentioned in verses 20 through 22 could have been made by holy men in the Garden of Eden had the fall not occurred. And all of these innovations and all of these scientific discoveries and all of these new professions could have been used for the honor and the glory of God and His worship. But instead, humanity does all these things, discovers these things, creates all these things, and then uses them in wicked ways rather than in God-honoring ways. The arts and the sciences are wonderful things, but they were meant to be used by us in the joyful service of our God. When separated from that purpose, they become wicked. 
Well, if we just had verses 17 through 24, we might become very depressed. This is what the human race has become. Is there any hope for the human race? Have all become estranged from God, separated from Him? Is there no hope for salvation? Is there none righteous at all? And didn't God say something about a seed of a woman who would come and crush the serpent's head? So, so what else do we have here? Well, that's why we come to verse 25. When we come to Genesis 4.25, we begin to learn about the genealogy of Seth. And this is the holy line. This is the line that was set apart by God. Of all Adam's sons, this particular son is chosen, and his line is chosen to be the line which God will use to preserve His truth and to pass along His worship from generation to generation. Now this does not mean that every person in Seth's line was saved. Not, not all of them necessarily knew God, trusted God, and uh, pr- trusted in the coming of a Messiah, uh, and, and therefore was saved. We don't know that. But we do know that this is the line from which men appear who do know the Lord and who are models of godliness for us. Ultimately, this is important to you, this is the line you come from. Because Noah comes from this line, and every one of us in this room is descended from Noah. And of course... This is also the line from which our Messiah, Jesus, would ultimately come. Now, in verse 25, we are told that Eve called this new son Seth because he had been appointed by God as another offspring in place of Abel. Um, That word offspring could be translated seed. It is the same word used in Genesis 3.15. When God promised a, a seed, a seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, would, Eve uses this same word here. Eve had thought, if you'll remember, that Cain would be the chosen seed, but he was not. He murdered his brother. He is at enmity with God. And so now another son has been born, another seed, and Eve here seems to have returned to a place of hope and trust that perhaps this son, perhaps through this seed, the Messiah, the serpent slayer, the one who will set things right again, perhaps it is through this one that he will come. And she was right. It would be through Seth's line. It would not be Seth, but it would be through his line that the Messiah would come. Now, as with Cain's genealogy, the goal in this one is to get us to a certain person. Uh, This is not an elaborate family tree. We're just mentioning one son from each generation, and we're getting from Seth down to Noah. Wives are left out. Daughters are left out. The sons who do not fall in the line of Noah are left out. The first son that is mentioned after Seth is Enosh. Do you see Enosh there in verse 26 of chapter 4? His name means weakness or frailty. Makes you wonder if when he was born he may have been sickly or something like that for them to give him that name of weakness or frailty. We are told that it was during this time, during the life of Enosh, that people began to call on the name of the Lord. Genesis 12, 8, we learn of Abraham building an altar and they're calling on the name of the Lord. And therefore we think that what might be being said here at the end of chapter 4 is that it was through Enosh 
that God worked to establish a recognized pattern of worship for His people that would be passed down to their descendants later. Many think that Enosh was the first to establish a public worship of the true God. What's really interesting is that in chapter 4, Abel means meaninglessness, vanity, emptiness. Enosh means frailty, weakness. And the two heroes in the midst of all the wicked men of Genesis 4 are these two men. The two men whose names mean um, a lack of something. Uh, Two men who uh, uh, did not have strong, mighty names, but rather had names of frailty or or emptiness. They appear as the righteous, God-honoring heroes of Genesis 4. And it's a reminder to us that God often uses the weak and the despised, raising them up to do mighty deeds for His glory. Do you hear that? For us as Christians, it is when we are weak that we are strong. It is when we have nothing to boast of in ourselves that we turn to God and find we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. God took two men in Genesis 4 who were um, known for their weakness, or at least their name signified such things, and God worked through them uh, to be the heroes of Genesis 4. When we come to chapter 5, It marks a new chapter, a new segment of the book of Genesis. We are reminded at the beginning of this section that God created man in his image as male and female, and he blessed them. In verse 3, we learn that Adam fathered a son in his own image, Seth. And since Adam was created in the image of God, and then since Seth was born in the image of Adam, we are to see here that the image of God is passed down throughout humanity. This is going to be important because later we're going to be told that our um, uh, respect for the dignity of one another is based on this belief that when we have a child, that child bears the image of God, that that image of God is passed down through the generations. It's marred by sin, but it is still there. Now, what are we to make of the fact that Adam lived 930 years? How are we to understand a genealogy in which the oldest man, Methuselah, lives 969 years? Even the youngest in the group died at the ripe old age of 777 years old. Enoch lived to be 365 years, but he didn't die. He was taken away, apparently, as a young buck at 365 years. So how are we to understand these ages? Some have tried to say that these ages are just symbolic, but there's nothing in the text that indicates that we should take these ages as anything but factual. And trying to take every one of these ages and figure out what they symbolize is a pretty rough task, and that just doesn't seem to be what I think God is doing here. Uh, I think these are accurate ages. Uh, Moreover, they do work with the storyline of Genesis. Um, because if you, if you take the time to put all this together, you'll see, according to these genealogies, the flood of Noah comes in the year 1656. 
That is, 1,656 years after the creation of Adam and Eve, the flood comes. And all of these descendants, if you map out their ages and look at them, all of them die before the flood. Methuselah is the one who dies last, and that's the year of the flood. So that many scholars think that Methuselah may actually have been killed in the flood. Um, Had it not been for the flood, it's possible that the oldest man in the Bible might have lived to be even older. There is no reason to doubt that the numbers are accurate. The problem is it just seems so different from what we know. Uh, We've never met anyone who lived anywhere near this length of time. And the idea of meeting somebody hundreds of years old is grotesque to us. Uh, We wouldn't want to meet somebody who's that old. They would be gross Um, But what we need to understand is that it appears that people during this time aged much slower than we do. Uh, In fact, if you'll look, nobody here is recorded recorded as having a child before the age of 65. So childbearing age apparently was much older uh, than it is for us. And so it seems like these people actually age slower than we do. Now, some have suggested uh, maybe their years are equivalent to our week's. Maybe their years are equivalent to our months, and then it would make more sense. The problem with that is is several things. One, we're getting ready to see the story of Noah, and for Noah, a year is clearly very similar to ours. A year appears to be 365 days in the story of Noah. Um, So we have that issue. He definitely knew a year, and his year was definitely like ours. The other issue is, uh, if you turn the years of Genesis, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, into weeks or months, it makes the creation of Adam and Eve come up closer to our own time so that Adam and Eve are created long after we already know that other people were on the earth. And so it just won't work. Um, It has to be what it says. It has to be years the way we understand years. I would suggest that the solution is simply to understand that the world before the flood of Noah was a very different place than it was afterward. Um, I would suggest to you that it was at the time of the flood that the Garden of Eden was removed from the earth and taken into heaven. I can't prove that. The Bible doesn't say that, but it makes sense that God would remove the Garden of Eden and His presence before the flood. Uh, I think God's special presence left the earth at this time. But also geologically and atmospherically and in many other ways, it appears that the very nature of planet earth changed in Noah's flood. Because when we look at the descendants of Noah after the flood, we see that their lifespans begin to decrease dramatically until their ages become much closer to what we know today. Now, when we contrast the line of Cain with the line of Seth, uh, we find a very uh, a representative of uh, the line, the seed of the serpent, whereas Seth's line does seem to represent that uh, line or seed of the woman from which the Messiah would come. Uh, two ways to see the differences between them is to compare the seventh name in both lists. We already looked at the seventh name in Cain's list. That was evil Lamech. But notice who the seventh name in Seth's list is. It's a man by the name of Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. Nobody else in this passage is is, is, uh, given that phrase. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. 
And so in Cain's line, the seventh person is wicked Lamech. In Seth's line, the seventh person is Enoch who walked with God. Only twice in the whole Bible is someone said to have walked with God. And those two men are Enoch and Noah. Um, The phrase saying that they walked with God refers to a, a lifestyle characterized by godliness, but it also refers to having intimate personal fellowship with God. In the midst of a world that had followed in the way of Cain, seeking to escape God, seeking to to go away from God and to rebel against God, in a culture, in a world that did not want fellowship with God, Enoch chose to walk with God. And therefore, he was markedly different than the rest of the world. Moreover, Enoch lived to be 365 years before God took him. So if we assume that he walked with God much of that time, he walked with God not for a few years or even a few decades. He walked with God for centuries. Isn't that amazing to think about? Walking with God for that amount of time. Now we, as Christians, have been granted fellowship with God through Jesus. So here's my question to you. Can you say that you are walking with God? Would that be an accurate description of your life? If you are walking with God, is your walk with God steady? Is it consistent? You're spending time with God daily. You're living in His presence. Or is it inconsistent? There's leaps and spurts, and sometimes you fall back, and sometimes you move forward. How is your walk with God? Is it a consistent thing? Do we enjoy communion with our God as a regular experience of our lives? Do we live out each day in a spirit of prayer, communicating to our God? And is our ongoing personal relationship with Him affecting the way we live? If I were to go home tonight and to write a letter to President Obama and put it in the mail tomorrow, I can almost guarantee you that he will never read my letter. First of all, he just gets way too many. Now, I I might get a nice little form letter from the office of the President of the United States, you know, just saying thank you for for sending your letter, but, but the President himself will probably never lay eyes on my letter. The truth is, I have no real access to the President of the United States. But the King of Kings, the Creator himself, has given us access to him. An amazing thought the one who made us, he he not only gives us access, he not only welcomes us to come and to bring our petitions to him, he actually calls us to do so. He even commands us to come and to cast our burdens and our concerns onto him. Our God always listens. He always hears. God is never too busy for us. Can you say, God is my God, And with the utmost reverence, can you say, He is also my friend? Can you speak that way about God? I walk with God. Is that a description of your life? As Christians, we are to walk with God. We are to love His presence. And we are to walk in the way He leads as we commune with Him, as we speak to Him, and then as He speaks back to us through His Word. We let Him guide us and lead us through His Word. Will Enoch walk with God? And God blessed Enoch by sparing him from the experience of physical death. 
Verse 24 simply says that Enoch was not. Other translations add in the word found. They say Enoch was not found. Uh, Hebrews 11.5 tells us that Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. The great blessing for Enoch, that he never had to experience death, is a reminder to us that all of us who have genuine fellowship with God, though we will die physically, unless the Lord Jesus comes back first, we will not remain dead physically. But like Enoch, who was taken to be with God, our bodies, like our souls, will one day be taken to be with God forever. As it once was in Eden, so it will be again us dwelling body and soul with our God. Is that good news to you? Is that good? Okay. On the complete other side of our Bibles, in the book of Jude, God tells us a little bit more about Enoch. Now, we're not, I'm not going to make you turn there, but there's not much told about Enoch here in Genesis, but all the way on the other side of the Bibles in Jude, God tells us a little bit more about Enoch. Listen to Jude 14. Enoch... The seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. In other words, Jude tells us that Enoch was a prophet a man who spoke of God's coming judgment to his wicked age. He warned people, even before the days of Noah, he warned people, judgment is going to come. God is going to bring his wrath on our world. Enoch was therefore a man of courage. He was a man of boldness. He was willing to confront the sin in his world with the truth of God. And I would suggest to you that it is when we walk with God that we then find the courage and boldness we need to engage the world around us. You see, where did Enoch get that courage and that boldness to stand up and to speak those things to the wicked world around him? Well, he was able to do that because his security was in the God that he knew in his closet at home. Remember this morning we talked about how your relationship with God affects your relationship with others? Enoch was walking with God, and therefore he had all the boldness and courage he needed to relate well to the world, and to speak truth to a world that hated God. Another contrast between the line of Cain and the line of Seth is to compare the two Lamechs of the two lines. You already saw Cain's Lamech, but Seth had a Lamech as well. In fact, many of the names in Cain's line and Seth's line are very similar, and both lines have a Lamech, and both lines have an Enoch. Um, But we don't know much about Cain's Enoch, we do know about Cain's Lamech and Seth's Lamech. When you compare them, one was a very unrighteous man, and one seems to have been a godly man. We learn about Seth's Lamech, the father of Noah, uh, in particular, verse 29. Look at verse 29 of chapter 5. And called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech named his son Noah, which sounded like the word for rest. And he named his son Noah as an expression of his expectation that God was going to use the son to bring relief from the curse in the garden. Ever since the 
mankind had been living in the difficulty of seeking to work and toil the ground in order to live off the land. But there was that promise of a Messiah who would one day come and set things right again. And that promise appears to have been passed down Seth's line so that now we have Lamech naming his son in a prophetic way. It kind of has a double meaning. The most superficial meaning is simply because of the curse... It's hard work working the ground and caring for my family. But God has given me a son, and as that son gets older, he can help me. He's going to bring relief to me in this toil of the ground. That's a very superficial meaning, but I think it has a double meaning. I think that's there, but I think it also means it will be through this one. It will be through this one that we will find relief, ultimate relief from the toil and the curse of the garden. And certainly it was through Noah that humanity was saved in the flood, uh, but more than that, it was ultimately through Noah that Christ would come and truly set things right. This is ultimately a messianic prophecy. The picture that we find in these early chapters of Genesis is that of a humanity that has gone corrupt, but also of a godly remnant that seeks to remain faithful and trust their Creator. question for you, first of all, is this. Are you a part of the world that has gone corrupt, or are you a part of the godly remnant that is striving to be faithful to God in a wicked age? The wicked are characterized by pride and violence and deceit, like Cain's Lamech. God's people are characterized by walking with Him and speaking like Enoch. In Revelation 12, we read of a woman about to give birth, and we read of a great dragon. And we're told in Revelation 12 that that dragon is a serpent. It is Satan himself. The woman is the seed of the woman. It is the people of God. And we are told there that Satan, just like God's people in the Old Testament, Satan was waiting for that promised Messiah. Satan was waiting for that serpent slayer to come because Satan's desire was to uh, devour, is the language used in Revelation 12. Satan wanted to devour that child as soon as that child came from the woman to destroy him at the very moment of his arrival. Satan used his seed ungodly, worldly people who hated God to try and destroy the Messiah when he came. Remember how Herod had all the babies in Bethlehem killed that were two years old and under, trying to kill the Lord Jesus when he was born? Remember how uh, Joseph and Mary had to flee to Egypt? And throughout the life of Jesus, he was opposed and hated and plotted against, plotted against by the seed of the serpent. Many people have noticed how the Gospels are filled with demons everywhere. People being demon-oppressed and demons approaching the Lord Jesus and Satan himself coming into Judas. And they say, you know, in the Old Testament, we don't see all that much about demons. And in our own experience, we don't see that much. Why was there so much demon activity during the life of Jesus? And the answer is, according to Revelation 12, Satan was doing everything he could to kill this serpent slayer. He wanted to to bring, and it could be either kill him physically or tempt him into disobeying his father and leaving his mission. Satan knew Genesis 3.15. Well, Revelation 12 goes on to say that once Jesus defeated Satan at the cross and rose from the dead and was exalted at the right hand of God and was out of possible harm from Satan, Satan then turns his attention on the other offspring of the woman. And if I understand that right, it's referring to the church. 
It's referring to us who are also from God's people, a part of the seed of the woman. And the uh, Revelation 12 tells us, and through the end of Revelation, that Satan is going to work through the world to bring pain and suffering to God's people. Like the three sons of Lamech, the wicked people of our age will continue to be creative and they will continue to invent new technologies and humanity will continue to progress in new discoveries and new possibilities. But rather than using these things for the glory of God, wicked man will use these things ultimately against God and against the people of God. Now we are called to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us and to long for their salvation. But we as Christians need to know who we are, and we need to understand our place in this world. As we seek to be salt and light, we will be opposed and hated. Controversy will follow us more and more as our nation falls further and further away from its religious past. Other Christians around the world already know this as a part of their normal experience. We here in the American South have been spoiled by a semi-Christian culture. But that culture is fading away very fast. And uh, it may be that in 20 years, we who actually believe the Bible will be treated with the same kind of disdain that Christians are already being treated with in other parts of our own country. And so in this world of wickedness, headed for destruction, we need to walk with God. We need to hold fast to God and to be that holy remnant. We need to hold fast to God's promises. We need to speak truth, even if it costs us our lives. We must do all of this humbly, knowing that it is only by God's grace that we have been saved. As humanity continues down the downward spiral of sin that will ultimately lead to destruction, we need to make sure we don't go that way with them. Jesus said that there is a narrow gate and a hard road that leads to life, and those that find it are few. How important it is to us that we be a part of the few, that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we trust Him, and in this wicked world, surrounded by the seed of the serpent, that we love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, share the gospel, longing for their salvation, and hold fast to God and walk with Him in this wicked age. Amen? Okay. Um, You just heard a sermon on a genealogy. (laughs) So if you've never heard a sermon where somebody tried to preach on a genealogy, uh, you've heard it tonight. Uh, Are there any questions or thoughts or comments about what we've seen this this morning uh, with Cain uh, or this evening with Cain's line and with Seth's line?